Psalm 106. As we slowly work our way through the Psalms, and we're making good good headway. We're two-thirds of the way at this point. You don't count Psalm 119, which is about half the book of Psalms, but uh, I do intend, everybody keeps asking me if they want to do that in one session. I think so. I think we're going to just hit it uh, real fast. But um, in the meanwhile, we've got several to go before we get there. We're in Psalm 106. This is, a again, a very lengthy psalm, and so let me read through it for you. And then we will discuss what's going on here. Psalm 106. Praise ye the Lord. Can anybody give me the Hebrew word that translated that? Hallelujah. This is the second place in the psalm that this is found. Second time. And you're going to find that this psalm both begins and ends with the statement, Praise ye the Lord, which is the translation of Hallelujah. Yah being contraction for Jehovah. Praise the Lord. Okay? Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, and that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might be, that he might make known the mighty power. uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me back up. He saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness, and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies, and there was not one of them left. Then believed they his words, and they sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their souls. They envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not his word, 
but murmured in their tents and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague broke in upon them. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment. And so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto a generations for everyone, unto all generations for everyone, for every more. Okay? They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went well, it went ill. <laughs> I'm, I, my glasses are, I'm blaming my glasses, okay? so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. Let me read that again. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes, because they provoked his spirit, so that he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen, and learned their works, and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them, Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works, and went a-whoring with, uh, their, in their doings, I guess you could say. Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. And he gave them into the hand of the heathen, and they that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God. Gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. Notice we began and end with that statement. I, I shared with you earlier that the book of Psalms, in the Jews' world, is divided into five books. And we are now, in Psalm 106, at the very last psalm of the fourth book. In other words, starting next time, we start the last book. They didn't have them all together, but had them in separate books. Um, this one completes book four, which began back at Psalm 90. So we have, for the last several weeks, been in this fourth book of Psalms. Um, when we asked ourselves about what, what is the setting of this and who is the author of it, um, we, of course, naturally would say David. Uh, David wrote the majority of the Psalms. However, there is some question about this one because if you'll notice the last verses, verses 46 and 47, the cry is that they be pitied by those who have taken them captive and that God would gather them from among the heathen. And so it is asserted by some 
that this psalm was written after the Babylonian captivity. In other words, this is a psalm written after that, and it is a plea for God to bring them back out of captivity. However, having said that, I argue back and forth with myself on this question. The interesting thing is when you read 1 Chronicles 16, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, set up the tent, you'll find that this, these last two verses that we would think speak of the Babylonian captivity were in the psalm that David wrote and gave to Asaph, his choir leader, to give to the Levites to learn to sing that day. So it may have been written by David, at least part of it, or maybe this is simply repeating that part that David had already written. At any rate, I suppose it's not a terribly important question of who exactly wrote it. Uh, let's turn our attention to its contents. I want you to get in mind, you who have been here the last few times, the sequence of Psalm 104, 105, and 106. If you'll thumb back to Psalm 104, just to let your eyes sort of gaze over it, you remember that Psalm 104 is a psalm praising God for His goodness and how He has fashioned this earth, this planet, for man, his creature, and for the wild beast, and the crops, and so forth. You all remember that? In other words, he's, he's uh, divided the land and the waters. He's, he's watered the earth. Uh, he's given water to the wild beast of the forest, the wildlife, we would say. He, he waters the crops so man will have something to eat. And it is exactly opposite of evolution. Evolution would say there's this environment and life evolves to fit these ecological niches. In this case, it's exactly the other way around. That God has in mind these creatures, man being one of them, and he has fashioned a place that fits the needs of his creatures. And so we would say this is a psalm concerning the general works of God. Then in Psalm 105, he does much like what we read just a moment ago in Psalm 106. He goes through and rehearses all of Israel's history. And notice that Psalm 105 speaks of God's faithfulness to his people, uh, what he's done for them, how he led them into Egypt, sent Joseph ahead to provide for them, and then sent Moses to deliver them out, and how he led them through the wilderness and brought them into Canaan. Okay? And I said last time, that this is an interesting contrast. Let me, let me stop a minute and ask you, do you know the difference between general revelation and special revelation? Jim's been talking about revelation on Sunday morning. When we say general revelation, what do we mean? Creation. Okay, why would creation be general revelation? Stuff you can see, it's for everybody. The idea of general means that everybody is exposed to that revelation. Where would be a good place to see that taught? What? Romans 1. Thank you, Barry. Glad you're here tonight. <laughs> Romans 1. What, how, why would that teach general revelation? Tell us what that, what's Paul saying there. right on the tip of your tongue, <laughs> that the creation displays the power and the greatness of God. In other words, we look at 
the works and we see the Creator behind them. And we can learn certain things about our Creator. Does general revelation save you? Will it damn you? In other words, it's enough knowledge to send you to hell, but it's not enough knowledge to send you to heaven. In other words, as Paul teaches there in Romans 1, every man is guilty before God because every man has been exposed to general revelation, the knowledge that there's a Creator, this great God out there, and what has man done with that knowledge? He suppressed it. It's sort of like a jack-in-the-box. You turn the handle and boop, up it comes, and you squish it right back in there, and up it pops. And as much as the testimony of a God out there is being presented, lost man suppresses it. And he not only suppresses it, but he perverts it. He's turned the glory. I don't know if you saw that verse here that we read just a moment ago about how they made, they took the glory of Israel and turned it into a golden a calf that eats grass. In other words, the perversion is that you would think that your God is like a cow in the first place and a cow that eats grass, of all things. Uh, that, that is sort of along those lines. Okay, what is special revelation? Scripture, the Word of God, the Gospel. Can you get the gospel by staring at the stars, looking at the dirt, the flowers, the field? We can see the glory of God, again, presented, but it takes special revelation to tell us what we need to go to heaven. I, I was reading someone speculating not long ago that had Adam and Eve not sinned in the Garden of Eden, general revelation would have been sufficient. In other words, you don't need the knowledge of a Savior. You don't need the knowledge of how sin is forgiven if they had never sinned. But once Adam and Eve falls into sin, then there is the need for special revelation. That is, the revelation of how are you going to get out of this mess. And so notice that distinction. And I've said here, and why I bring all that up, is Psalm 104 is a general history of God's dealings with all men. It's like He's dealing here with the planet Earth and everything on it. Man, animals, wildlife, everything. But in Psalm 105, it's His special history. you got general history. Now you got special history, what He has done specifically for Israel. How He led them, brought them into Egypt, took care of them, sent Joseph ahead of them, then sent Moses to bring them out, fed them, through the wilderness brought them into Canaan. In other words, you have the general picture of God's goodness to all His creatures. Now you have the specific story of His history towards His covenant people. You with me? In other words, it follows, and why I bring up general and special revelation is because it's like general and special history. There's a history of God with the planet in general. But there's a special history of His dealings with this people. Well, then tonight, notice that Psalm 106 goes right back over the same territory as did Psalm 105. Except this time, what is in view is not God's goodness. Well, it is in an off sort of a by way, but it is specially pointing out the failure of Israel to understand and appreciate this special relationship that God has with them.
All right? Let's, let's look at it. Notice that the first five verses forms a little preamble where the psalmist is noting the mighty acts of God and uh, the blessedness of those who have been faithful to him. But yet he writes from the standpoint of one who is in the midst of a guilty and sinful people. And so he pleads with God to remember him with his favor and visit him with his salvation. And he longs to see, rejoice, and glory in what God does with his chosen, his nation, his inheritance. I want you to see those three words there. Look in verse 5. I want to see the good of thy chosen. In other words, how does God describe his people? They're his chosen. They're the elect. That I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, your nation. Number three, that I may glory with thine inheritance. So notice all three expressions are identifying God's people. Okay, so this is the preamble. It is the cry, the confession of one who is in the midst of a people and a guilty people at that. So why are they guilty? Look at verse 6. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. And you say, well, when, when did you do bad things? And his answer is going to be, when didn't we? From day one, in God's dealings with us, we have rebelled against him every step of the way. Let's look at it. First of all, from verses 7 to 11, I'm intentionally hurrying because this is a long song. From verses 7 to 11, he speaks of Israel's failure at the Red Sea. Some, somebody here described to me that failure. What happened at the Red Sea? You say, I thought, it, I saw in the movie, you know, Cecil B. DeMille in the movie, and oh, uh, Yul Brenner, no, it wasn't Yul Brenner, Charlton Heston, you know. Uh, what happened at the Red Sea? What was their sin? That's it. First thing out of their mouth, they look up, and here comes the Egyptians with their chariots. Well, God just brought us out here to kill us. First thing they think. And so he makes reference to that. Next one, verses 12 through 15, it is their griping and their complaining in the wilderness. Somebody describe that to me. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? They're thirsty. They wanted onions. I can't imagine a worse thing to lust for when you're out in the hot desert is onions, leeks, and garlic. Oh boy, I want me a big old onion. Uh, Let me have some garlic. They wanted fish. They wanted flesh. You remember, we used to eat flesh out of the flesh pots of Egypt. So we want flesh. And God gave them flesh. He sent the birds, you remember, the quails. They, he got, they wanted food. He gave them manna. But notice every step of the way, they no sooner run, they no sooner get into the wilderness than they, again, Moses, you just brought us out here to kill us. And, and so you see the rebellion. Verses 16 through 18, he speaks of Korah. Well, he doesn't mention Korah by name. He mentions Dathan. And, uh, it, it is involving the rebellion of Korah. Somebody explain that one to me. I mean, y'all did see the movie, didn't you? This when he got swallowed up. What was what was going on? They were what? 
you need to go watch the movie, okay? Because <laughs> this part, who played who played Cora or Dathan in the movie? The uh, Edward G. Robinson. This is Edward G. Robinson. What what would you say, Michael? They were challenging Moses' authority. You've taken on too much. We're just as good as you. We're Levites just like you. We're from the same family. Uh, we want a we want a piece of the action here. Okay. So they're rebelling against the authority that God had placed upon them. Uh, then he mentions their idolatry at Mount Sinai. This is verses 24 through 27 with the golden calf. Somebody tell me what happened there. Moses went up to get the law. They said to Aaron, Huh? He's taking too long. We don't know what's happened to him, so make us a god to worship. And so Aaron, the text tells us, fashioned a golden calf. And uh, when Moses came down the mountain, what is he hearing? He, at first they thought it was the sound of war, and then they said, no, that's not war, that's partying, that's Mardi Gras going on down there. The people were naked, dancing around the golden calf. And, uh, of course, Aaron... His good excuse is, I just, you know, the people gave me their golden earrings, I threw them in the furnace, and there came out this golden calf, you know. It just came out that way. Uh, typical excuses. But in other words, now they have no sooner got uh, away from Sinai, or they're not even away from Sinai, and they're already worshiping idols. Uh, verse uh, 28 through 31, he mentions Baal Peor. Somebody tell me what happened at Baal Peor. You recall that they're camped uh, over on the east side of the Jordan River getting ready to go across. And it is when uh, Balak and Balaam, you remember, attempts to curse them. And God thwarts him, but he gives counsel that what you need to do is bring out the girls. And they seduce the men of Israel down to the table of Baal at this place called Mount Peor. Now that sounds, you know, again, maybe sort of bad, but we don't understand how bad, because to go down and eat at the idol's table means that you're participating in the worship of that idol. They would sacrifice a victim to their god, maybe a calf, then they cook it up and serve it. It's their communal meal. It's their Lord's Supper. It's their communion service. And so I've often said there's nothing wrong with eating juice and crackers but I'm not going to go to the Catholic Church and kneel down and let the Catholic priest put a wafer on my tongue. You understand there's a completely different uh, something being symbolized there. There I am participating in the worship of that system. So it is here that they've brought down to Belpierre. Anybody remember how many of them died that day? I'm Off the top of my head, 24,000. What ended the plague? Phinehas. Phinehas is Eleazar's son, the high priest. Well, the next one down from Aaron. And uh, talk about a case of bad timing. One of these Israelite men brought his Moabite girl, girlfriend through the camp into the tent. And Phinehas followed them in and skewed them, shishkabogged them uh, with his spear. And God says, good thing he did that or I'd have killed every one of you. 
So this was the turning away from God in a national way there at Baal Peor. Uh, then notice in verses 32 and 33, he mentions the place of striving. This thing's sort of acting up a little bit, Charles. The place of striving, let me find that. 32, they angered him also at the waters of strife. In the Hebrew, this is called Meribah. The waters of strife, Meribah. What happened there? Moses got mad and struck the rock. Remember, he was supposed to speak to the rock, and he got frustrated with them and says, "How you know, we just have to babysit you guys all the time. Struck the rock, and twice, in fact, and water came out and fed them. So they're complaining, griping about water once again. This is the second time this has happened. But this time, Moses loses his cool, and for this, God says, you're not going to go into Canaan. But notice how the psalm puts it, verse 33, because they provoked his spirit so that he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. Yeah, Moses said some things he shouldn't have said, but they they poked him, they kept nagging him till he lost his cool. And so, again, just another symptom of their rebellion. And then verses 34 through 39, he mentions that uh, they did not destroy the nations. Verse 34, what's he talking about? Okay, they were going in the land of Canaan. They'd been given a commandment not to make peace with them, to drive them out. And what he's pointing out here is that they failed to execute that. Some of them did it, but in a partial way. The tribe of Dan basically just threw up their hands and relocated to an easier place. Just left lock, stock, and barrel where they had been assigned as their allotment of the land of Canaan. Left it and went up north. Just migrated away. Uh, you had other of the tribes that would conquer part of their territory, typically the hill country, but they would never subjugate the people down on the plain. So he's just pointing out again that they failed to keep what God had commanded them to do. Now, do you, do you understand what's going on? Is that just, here, here we're being taken an excursion through Israel's history. We're going right back over the same territory we went over in Psalm 105. But this time, it's showing you that at every step of the way, Israel has failed, Israel doesn't trust God, Israel has rebelled against God. And so we come to the very end here of this section in verse 40, Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. Israel's being spoken of here as his inheritance. And he gave them into the land of the heathen, and they hated them, uh, they that hated them, ruled over them. In other words, God finally got to the point he just washed his hands of them, gave them up, gave them up to their enemies. Now again, this sounds to us like Babylonian captivity, and it may well be. That's what he's talking about. And certainly later on, this is what's going to happen. But notice in verses 43 through 46, even though God has given them up, he is still showing them his favor. Notice in verse 44, he hears their cry when they cry to him. Verse 45, he remembers his covenant. He repents according to the multitude of his mercies. And he made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. In other words, he actually watched over them when they were in captivity. Give me an example of that. 
And Esther is the one that comes to my mind. There's other other examples, but notice in Esther, uh, you have the story of the wicked Haman who is basically taught the king of Persia into exterminating, annihilating the Jews. And Queen Esther is queen, and she goes in and intercedes, and the strange providence that happens uh, whereby Haman winds up getting hanged on his own gallows. So notice again, we have the story of God's faithfulness to them in spite of their sin. And so in spite of all this, there's still hope that God will deliver His people. And of course, that's what we see there in the closing verses, verse 47, where the cry is to save us, to gather us from among the heathen. Um, Well, let's talk about it. If I'm a Jew and I read this psalm, what is this telling me about me? You understand that a Jew typically had the notion that he's cut above everybody else. After all, he's special. God chose him. He has a law that no other nation has. He has a relationship with God that no other nation has. He has a temple. He has ordinances that no other nation has. He has this conception of God that is so different from the heathen. And so he has more light. He has more revelation. As we saw in those previous Psalms, everybody else has that general revelation. He's got the special revelation. The oracles of God, Paul calls them, have been delivered to him. He knows about God. Does that make any difference? I mean, every step of the way he rebelled. From day one, it is a constant rebellion against what God says do, what God has revealed about himself. And so you see that your history, yeah, you've been set apart in a special way but in no way do you deserve what has come to you. If, if ever there's anything good coming to you, it's coming in spite of you, not because of you. Do, do you see that? You, you have fought this thing. I, I said Sunday that we help God saving us about like gravity helps a plane to fly. And we're not neutral. Oh, that we were just neutral. But we fight. We, we are, we're about as helpful as water is to a fire. That's our contribution. And notice that that's Israel's long history. There, you, you ask yourself, what's going on? What did God do when he separated Israel and had a special relationship with them? would put it like this. If you've got a well full of water, and you want to know if this water is safe to drink, do you have to test every molecule of water in the well? Or do you just drop you a test tube down there and get you a sample and take that and test it? And if the sample's bad, that means all the water in the well is bad. If the, well, if the sample's good, then all the water's going to be good. Do you understand that God took a sample of mankind in the nation of Israel? And he had a special relationship. He had certain things he did with that nation, certain tests, certain laws, certain commandments that nobody else had. These are the tests of this one group of people. 
And at every point, they failed the test from day one. They're always rebelling. They're always disobedient. Go to the book of Acts. Chapter 7. Stephen, who was one of the deacons in the church of Jerusalem, is in a a Greek-speaking synagogue, and uh, they get mad at him, and they uh, take him out, as you know, and eventually will stone him. But before they do, he preaches them a sermon. And what I notice about this sermon is how similar it is to what we have read tonight. uh, Acts chapter 7, notice verse 2. He begins, men and brethren, God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Brought him out of uh, the land, verse 4, of of the Chaldeans. Gave him an inheritance. Um, Notice in verse 8, gave him the covenant of circumcision. And he begat Isaac, who begat Jacob. And he begot the twelve patriarchs. Notice what he's doing. Going right back through the same history. Uh, Verse 9, Joseph got sold into Egypt. uh, But God delivered him there and made him ruler second only to Pharaoh. Uh, The family relocates, 70 of them, verse 14, go down to Egypt. Um, Then you have verse 20, Moses being born. Do you understand here he's doing the same thing we've done tonight and the same thing we did last Wednesday night? Well, what's his point? What is he driving at? Look at the punchline. Verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them who showed before the coming of the Just One, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. You have killed the Christ. You have murdered the Messiah. You killed the prophets for prophesying that He was coming, and now that He's come, you've killed Him. You see the point? Every step of the way in your history, you have been rebellious and disobedient, and now you've been disobedient again. Now, does that mean that the Jews are worse than anybody else? Remember, this is just a sample out of the well. That they're really no different than any other people in this sense. They are just like us. I uh, worked with a Jewish fella out at the state hospital in Wyoming. He was a patient there, not I. I'm sticking to that story. And... Uh, at any rate, uh, he told me one day, we were in the garbage truck picking up trash, and he said, uh, you know why the Christians hate the Jews? I said, uh, no, tell me. And he says, well, he says, a mother takes her little child into the church, and the little child looks up there on the wall and sees this bloody figure hanging there on a cross, and the child asked his mother, mommy, who did that to him? And the mother says, the Jews did that to him. 
He said, that's why Christians hate the Jews. I said, I don't think you quite understand because when I think of Jesus on the cross, I don't say the Jews did that to him. I say, I did that to him. It's my sin that put him there. Yeah, they may have been the instrumental cause. The Romans may have actually driven the nails. They may have been the one who screamed for his blood. But I'm the guilty party. They're no worse than me. And their history of rebellion against God is my history of rebellion against God. And so notice that Stephen's point in his sermon, and by the way, at least I have never gotten stoned after a sermon. I've gotten balled out before, but never stoned. Stephen's sermon hit hit the mark. It pricked their heart. And sometimes when the... Holy Spirit pricks a man's heart. They repent, like on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. Other times they take up stones and kill you. And Stephen was of the latter. But notice he is doing exactly what our psalmist is doing, taking them through their history to prove their sin. Then in Acts 13, Paul is in a Jewish synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, up in modern-day Turkey. Here in Acts 13, verse 16, Then Paul stood up, beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, listen, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt with a high arm, brought them out of it. About the time of 40 years, he, he bore their manners in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations, he gave them the land of Canaan. You understand, he's going right back through the same history. And you have to ask yourself, I mean, every Jew in that synagogue knew that history. Here he's going right through the same story again. Stephen went through that story to prove to them their sinfulness. What's Paul's point? Paul brings them up to David's day. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, who shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And notice now he switches to the ministry of John the Baptist, And in verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you fears God, to you is this word of salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen many days of them who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, gospel, how the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Now notice the point here is that God, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your sin, 
has fulfilled his oath. He has kept his word. He has raised up to you a Savior. Now, and I want you to see how striking that is, that it ought to hit us like a freight train, that all I have done to contribute to my salvation is fight it. And in spite of me, God has sent a Savior into this world. We don't know why He chose whom He did. Somebody said, well, we'll know that when we get to heaven. I don't know. Maybe so, maybe not. What we do know is that the ones that He chose to save, He did not choose to save them by what He saw in them. There was no cause of salvation and grace to be found in the recipient of that grace. Why he did it, I'm sure it wasn't random. I'm sure it wasn't arbitrary. There was a reason why God chose me and chose you. But it wasn't me and it wasn't you. It was his purpose. It was in spite of me and in spite of you. And that's what they're preaching to Israel in their history. Look at your history, Israel. You fought against your God from day one, and in spite of you, He sent His Savior. He's raised Him from the dead. You killed Him on the cross. He's raised Him from the dead to be a Lord and a Savior to His people. I, my words fail me to be able to, to get across to you the impact of all of that. You were fighting him every step of the way. Didn't make a bit of difference. He's a faithful God. He's a merciful God. He will be true to what he has promised. Well, let me stop and just ask, am I getting across to you? I see this sort of look of bewilderment on some of your faces out there. You, you understand the sequence. Isn't it an interesting sequence, Psalm 104, 105, 106, of how one goes from one, from the general goodness of God to all, to the goodness of God to Israel, and then Israel's sin in the face of all that goodness. We, we sometimes use the expression, biting the hand that feeds us, and that is Israel's history. They bit, they fought the God who preserved them. You would think that at some place they would stop and say, you know, we can trust God. He's visited us. He's brought us out of our bondage and captivity. He's provided for us. I mean, every day we get up and there's manna on the ground. When we needed water, He gave it to us out of a rock. You would think, that all those external things, you think, well, if we could just see a few miracles, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be better people. You can't see, one generation has never seen more miracles than that generation saw. Didn't help them a bit. At the first sign of crisis, they rebelled against their God. And yet God, in spite of them, has fulfilled his purpose. Now, why has he done that? Give me an answer. Why wouldn't he just wash his hands of them and be rid of them? For his namesake. What does that mean? His glory? When we say for his namesake, what we're really saying is what he's doing is demonstrating his character. 
And Laura said up here, I don't know if you could hear it in the back, to show His mercy. The only reason why He shows us mercy is because He's a merciful God. It's His nature. He doesn't choose to be merciful. He is merciful. And that's the only hope you and I have. Because we have given Him every reason not to be merciful. Every step of the way, we fought against Him. And in spite of our best efforts, He saved us. I mean, we were trying to go to hell as hard as we could go. And in spite of our best efforts, he said, I've said that about doctors, you know. He was working on me as hard as he could, and in spite of himself, I, I came through. <laughs> you know, I've had some of those kind of doctors. <laughs> well, I was doing that as far as my salvation is concerned. He could have and should have left me to perish. And yet, for his name's sake, to reveal his glory. I have a, there's an interesting question. Why in the world did God allow sin to enter into this world in the first place? Anybody ever have those thoughts? I mean, old Gene Breed over in Atlanta, he, he says, you'd have to hear Gene preach to appreciate this. But he says, I know God could have kept sin out of this world. All he had to do is cut the head off one snake. And he said, I've seen my granddaddy do that. I know God could have done it. Yeah, that's all he had to do is cut the head off one snake, and there wouldn't have been sin. Why did God allow the fall? For his namesake. Do you realize that without the fall, you would have never have known the attributes of God's justice and judgment? And without the fall, you would never know God's attributes of mercy and grace. You would never know what Micah is telling us, who is a pardoning God like thee? Because there would have never have been sin to pardon. There would never be any objects of mercy. Yes, ma'am? We'd seen his wrath and judgment. And we'd never... And you understand in the book of Revelation when it speaks of some folks, man, humanity, redeemed humanity, alone able to sing a song, a song of redemption that the angels witness this. We have that very interesting verse in Ephesians, I believe it is, when he's talking about what goes on in the church, that angels inquire. Angels are looking at it. Angels that are marveling at what God is doing in us. When we want to go see the sights, we want to go on vacation, we go to the Grand Canyon, we go to Yellowstone. When angels want to see remarkable things, they come to church. Because here they are seeing something they never saw in their own situation. Never was there any mercy offered. Never was there a Savior for angels. Never was there a gospel to be proclaimed to angels. Yet to fallen humanity, something's different. God is displaying His grace his mercy. And no wonder then Paul writing about election and predestination and all of that in Ephesians 1 says that we be to the praise of the glory of His grace. Angels can be to the praise of the glory of His judgment and justice. You and I have that remarkable office to be the displayers of God's grace and mercy. 
before the eyes of the moral universe. We are the objects of wonder. We are amazing things. We ought to be, one of the old Puritans said, I'm amazed to others and I'm amazed to myself. I am awestruck with what God has done for me. All right? You believe that? It's an amazing... We sing amazing grace. We just don't get very amazed. But it is. We need every now and then to be reminded. Like Israel needs to be reminded. Here's your history. You think you're something special? You think you've earned this? Let me tell you where you've come from. Let me tell you about your family tree. You say, well, that was my father's. You remember how the Pharisees, Jesus said, woe unto you. You, you say, our, our, you know, our fathers killed the prophets. Had we lived in that day, we wouldn't have done what they did. And he said, you've just, you've just hung yourself. You are the children of those who murdered the prophets. You're just like your father. We have that old saying, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. Is it acorn or apple or something or another? Meaning like father, like son, right? This is where you've come from. This is your family. Here's your heritage. Here's your history. And in spite of it all, God has saved you. We ought to be... No wonder you get to the end of that psalm. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise the Lord. 